Uh, we got a lot of cool stuff for you this morning. Um, one of the things I just wanted to share just coming out of the gate is we took a, a survey just recently, Natural Church Development Survey, which um, at least to my understanding is the broadest and biggest and deepest church survey um, that's kind of ever been. And so churches can, can uh, take this thing and it rates you in eight different areas of church health. And you have 35 people take it, which statistically holds your results kind of like all the way up to a church of 10,000 or more. It's kind of like when they do those um, polls, political polls, they sample like 1,000 people, and that's supposed to be enough for the whole country, you know, to give them the right um, accuracy, things like that. So this thing, uh, 35, and it holds you up into the 10,000s in terms of accuracy. We had guys and gals of all ages take it, um, people on staff, not on staff, with the church from the beginning, uh, newer to the church, but we had 35 random people take it, and we got our results back when I was um, when I was on vacation. So the elders don't even know this, but uh, let me read you two quotes, and I put them on the board for you from the guy that this is his job. He runs these uh, surveys as kind of a consulting business, and here's what he said in the email that he attached the results to. On a personal note, these are the highest scores I have ever seen. And they tell me that your congregation has the health and fitness of a high-caliber athlete. Congratulations, you are blessed to lead a healthy church. Um, And so these scores were, I've done this test, this survey with all the churches I've worked with over the last um, decade or 12 years. And so it was amazing to see these things. Every single one of our eight scores was up into the 15th percentile and then all the way up beyond into like the one percentile and stuff like that across the board with nothing less like outside of that top 15% category. So all that to say this, this is really cool. Um, Antioch's growing, it's growing fast, and that's not what we're here for. I mean, it's nice and all, but that's not what really gets us excited. What gets us excited is that it's, it's, there's a lot of cool things going on and that it's healthy. And so I thought I'd share that with you because it was encouraging to me. And it doesn't mean that Antioch's perfect. doesn't mean we don't have flaws and mistakes because we do. Any church where I'm a pastor of is going to have plenty of problems. Um, But there's some really cool things going on. So um, a couple of the areas that I think we could really grow in, though, uh, are in in our small groups still and getting people connected. And so just want to put this offer out to you. If you'd like help getting connected at Antioch, just write it on that connecting card and put it in the basket. And Brandon or myself will hunt you down, take you to coffee, and we'll try and really help walk you through the process and get you connected. And then I was at Disneyland, so I came up with another idea that in January we're going to do. They got this cool thing at Disneyland called the Fast Pass. Have you ever been to Disneyland lately? Like, you know, the old day was you'd wait in a line for an hour at every ride you go to, and now you go put your ticket in this machine, and it gives you this fast pass, and it tells you in this window you can come back to the ride, and you just go right to the front of the line. (laughs) You guys don't realize how cool that is? I mean, come on. It's it's the neatest thing I've ever seen. And so, you know, my little daughters, because Esther just made the 40 inches, um, so she was on cloud nine. We were running from ride to ride. You just go right to the front of the line. And so I thought, you know, that'd be a great thing to do at church because you go to church and sometimes it feels like, man, do I have to put in like a year 
of waiting in line and just being anonymous and standing there before anyone will like, you know, get me connected or get me on a ride or, or engage me or, or whatever. And, and so I thought, why don't we have like an Antioch fast pass like class? And so in January, I'm thinking about just doing three weeks. It'll be week one. Here's what Antioch is and, and what we believe. Week two is kind of getting you connected into relational things and community and stuff like that. And then week three would just be trying to find ways to get you connected and serving in a ministry that fits your gifts and your passion and stuff like that. So that's one area that I think we can really still grow. Um, And so I'm excited that we got good results on that survey. I'm excited that um, I've got a cool name for a connecting class, Fast Pass. Um, And uh, so there's just a lot of fun things coming that way. So I just wanted to just connect you guys into that. Uh, but this morning we're starting a series called Elements, and and uh, Gary did another slide where it said 2005, so I was going to make fun of him, but I guess this one's right, got the date right. Gary does graphics, but he doesn't do data well, um, so maybe later we'll put that other one up there. But um, we're starting the series called Elements, and I think the first question is, why do a, a series called Elements? Earth, wind, fire, water. Why do that? It's not even Earth Day. It's not even the month of Earth Day. Um, is this some kind of a save the earth liberal thing? And it's not. So I'll tell you the, the two motivating factors for this series. And the first one is just um, real simple. The Planet Earth DVD series. Does anyone run across that? With like the sharks coming out of the water. And I mean, it's just the craziest thing that you've ever seen. Like it's two years of these people going around and getting the most amazing footage of planet Earth. Um, different things, animals and, and all that other stuff and um, storms, just all sorts of crazy stuff. And so we saw that video and we thought, wouldn't that make an amazing trailer for a sermon series on like earth stuff? And so that, that was the first motivation and it has nothing to do with anything spiritual other than God created the earth. Um, the second reason for doing this series is just this, um, that everything is spiritual. Justin was talking about when we were, when we were worshiping that he knows he's not the only one that's got it rough in life. And, and we say at Antioch a lot that, that life is messy. You know, God is mysterious and life is messy. Um, and that's just kind of the baseline. And, and we are all hungry for God to speak to us, to comfort us, uh, to talk to us. And when we see Christ talking or God talking through the prophets, all throughout Scripture, when God speaks to his people, he invokes language of natural things, parts of creation. And so he uses analogies and and he likens things from the ground to the wind to birds to flowers. And that's how he communicates with us. That's how he conveys meaning. And so we thought, you know, everything is spiritual and life is messy and people are hungry to hear from God. Why don't we look at those elements that God created and that he uses to speak to us. And so basically what we're doing with this four-week series is drawing out the macro themes that are there throughout Scripture, the, the big themes from the beginning to the end of Scripture. So that's kind of the motivation. I was down in California for Thanksgiving, and my, my cousin's kids had this, um, this surf shirt on that was elements, earth, wind, fire, and water. And I was, I was kind of looking at their shirt, and I was laughing, and I was like, wow, it's funny. You know, I'm about to do a sermon series on that. And they got super stoked, and they're like, you've got to wear the shirt. And so they're trying to give me their shirts, and it's size medium, and so that doesn't work. And so, um, so I had to actually go buy an element shirt. So here it is. I'm wearing the sermon. 
Um, I would have gotten you all one too, but there wasn't enough in the store. So I'm, I'm sorry about that. Um, maybe next time we'll make our own shirts. So that's the story behind the shirt. So let's get started here. Uh, I want to just say a couple things about earth. And when I'm talking about earth, I'm talking about soil. I'm talking about land. I'm talking about dirt. And the first thing that we kind of get from this, I think, is this idea that it's the, the essence of something. And so uh, from, from dirt we came into to dust, we're going to go back. That God talks about the essence of people as kind of being dirt or dust that he's breathed life into. And so when we talk about dirt, we're, we're talking about the essence of something. And there's this clip from Saving Private Ryan that I think kind of shows a little bit of that too, just dirt as the essence of something. clip uh, of a guy that now has just stormed the beaches at Normandy, and he's got his Africa dirt, and he's got his Italy dirt, and now he grabs the French dirt and puts it in the tin that he's already got prepared for it, because the dirt represents the places that he's been. It's the essence of it. And so one of the things we get from soil is just, it's the essential um, base of something. And I think to take that a little further, that the soil or ground is the bottom. It, it is... Uh, that that thing that's the foundation, it's the, the rock bottom of all that kind of is. And so we use the word ground for that. When something's grounded electrically, it, it goes down to the bottom and just grounds out. Um, and so we understand this whole concept of earth or, or land or dirt or ground just being the bottom thing, the foundation, the starting point kind of for everything. And so in that vein, I want to read a couple verses to you. And, and I've got these ones on the board. Um, but I'm going to just read a couple to you. So this is Genesis 1.10, and, and uh, God is now creating the heavens and the earth. And in verse 10, he gathers the dry ground, and he calls it land. And then in verse 11, he says this, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation. And I want to flip over just to another verse. And uh, this is in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, man, I thought I had it marked. Deuteronomy one twenty one says this. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your fathers told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. So the idea here is uh, this land that is being given or promised is the good thing that's going to produce what these people need to live. It's what they're going to live on. Flip back to Genesis just one more time. In Genesis chapter 47, it says this, 47 verse 19. Why should we perish before your eyes? This is uh, the Israelites talking to the Egyptians. Why should we perish before your eyes? We and our lands as well. What does that mean, lands perish? Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. 
Give us seed so that we may live and not die and that the land may not become desolate. And so not only is the land there for our good and it's supposed to produce vegetation, it has potential within it to grow things and to give life. It's, it's latent potentiality. What, what these Israelites are saying is if we don't plant our land, it's going to turn into a dust bowl. It's going gonna, it's gonna to become desolate. And so all throughout history, we see where forests are taken away and then it becomes a desert or um, where crops aren't planted and then it becomes a dust bowl kind of back in the depression area and uh, era, not area, depression area. Uh, and so when land isn't utilized so that it, it gives rise to that potential and produces life, it becomes desolate. And so land is the bottom of everything, and it's got this latent potential in it to give life, to birth things, and that's what it's for. That's what it's designed for. It's what it's supposed to do. And so that whole thing kind of gives me an interesting thought on the whole idea of the four soils in Matthew chapter 13. So if you don't mind, just turn with me to Jesus' parable of the four soils in Matthew chapter 13. It's in the Gospels, it's the first one, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. And we get this kind of idea that it's an either or, it's a good and a bad. So you've got this land, and it's supposed to do this, and if, if it's not planted, if it's not treated well, whatever, it's going gonna, it's gonna to do what it's not supposed to do, it's going to become desolate. So this kind of either or. And it's fascinating, it's so important that God, when he's talking in Leviticus, He's talking about judgment that will come on the nation of Israel if they don't obey his commands. And he starts kind of rattling it off. And if you don't obey my commands, it's going to go bad for you. If you still don't obey my commands, it's like your sons and your daughters will die. They're going to perish before your eyes, which is pretty bad. Okay, And then he goes further and says, and if you still don't obey my commands, then the land will become desolate and I'll curse the land. I mean, it's the, the thing which you live upon. It's the rock bottom. It's the ground. It's the earth. And the worst I can do is to curse that, okay? Because it gives life to everything else. It, it raises everything else up. So with that background, here we come to Matthew chapter 13. And Jesus, is, we're going to read a whole bunch. And he gives this parable in front of a large crowd. And he says this, A farmer went out to sow his seed. And he was scattering the seed, Some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. And still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. So the last soil does what soil is supposed to do. It produces this crop. It's, it's a bounty. And the disciples don't get it. Why is he speaking in parables? Um, we don't know the answer to the test. You know, How can we say true or false, yes or no, A, B, C, or D, because it's, it's riddles and it's poetry and, and we don't understand it. And so they kind of come back to him and they say, um, what does it mean? And Jesus explains it, and he says this in verse 18. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. 
And I want to stop there for just a second. The kingdom, the message of the kingdom, the truth about God, the truth about God's plan, just truth in general, is sown. And it's sown in the parable into what? Into soil, right? And here it says, Jesus says, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his or her heart. This this particular scenario where the seed was sown and it never takes root, it's snatched away. It's snatched away from what? It's snatched away from that person's heart. And so Jesus' whole parable is equating a heart with soil. And so the heart being when we strip away the clothing, when we strip away the image and the masks, when we strip away your talents, when we strip away everything else that makes you you, and we get to the core of who you are the ground, the bottom, the thing that has that latent potential and in that soil, the earth of who you are, that's your heart. And Jesus has got it. And he says, this soil is like your heart. And if it doesn't take root in this first scenario, it's the evil one who's snatching away the seed. And then he goes on. This is the seed that was sown along the path. But the one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man or woman who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes, because of the word, he quickly falls away. Okay. So here's truth, the truth about God, the truth of Jesus, um, and it's sown into somebody's heart, and it begins to bring problems in that person's life. What kind of problems come from the word that was sown. Relational problems. I remember when I became a Christian, uh, I went for like four months with no friend at all. And I went from knowing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, been in college for four years in a fraternity, and I knew tons of people, and all of a sudden I had no friends. And, then, and I'm an extrovert, so I started like talking to myself. I'm imaginary friend. I'm just kidding. But it was hard. And that's trouble that comes from the word that's sown. In that time, the other thing that happened was um, I didn't know how to be happy. When I became a Christian, I left a lot of things behind. And I had to relearn how to enjoy life, how to be happy, how to even have a good time. I mean, I had to, like from the ground up, relearn how to go out on a Friday night and be happy. And that's trouble and it's difficulty and it comes from the word. And what Jesus is saying is there's, there's things that come from this word and there's the guy or the gal who can't deal with it and so they kind of rip out that, that seed and they go back to where they were. It can't continue to grow. They can't deal with the consequences. At their heart, at the core level, they can't continue to give life to this new thing because they can't handle the consequences. So at the core of who they are, they choose to kill it at that point. And in verse 22, it goes on. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. 
And so someone begins to get excited about God and gets to begin to get excited about this new life, this new creation. And, and all of a sudden, they begin to realize the earth and everything in it is God's and all of our money is God. And he requires back a tithe and, and that's roughly 10%. And that's just on the front end. And on the back end, that's the first fruits is the tithe. And so before you spend money on anything else, you give 10% to God. And then guess what? Because um, here's the interesting thing. I think a lot of people misunderstand tithes. Everybody's quibbling about what makes a tithe. What if I give to missions? What if I give to this? Well, I give to the person in need that I know, and that's my tithe. And, and here's the crazy thing about a tithe. The tithe is 10%. You take it to the temple. You give it to God. You don't know where it goes. Your, your only reward is that you're acting in faith. Your reward isn't going, I was able to give it to this thing, and that brought me joy. Okay? Your joy comes in obedience. I did what God required of me. I gave my tithe. There's a lot of money, and that's my joy because that's God's money. It's not mine, and it teaches me everything. And we try to spend our tithe. Well, here's kind of a good cause. Let me give some of my tithe money to that. Here's kind of a good cause. Let me give some of my tithe money to that. And our joy comes in basically being able to, to make friends or to see the good that comes from our money, and, and that begins to be kind of what we get out of it. And so a lot of things goes on about tithe. Here's the crazy thing about the tithe is the first 10% of your, your harvest goes to God. It's called a tithe. You want to know where the last 10% goes? See, you're supposed to harvest your field, and then everything drops to the ground, like, and you, you're able to get the big stuff, but there's about 10% that's still laying on the ground. And God says, don't pick that up. You leave that 10% because now the poor people are going to come through and they're going to live off of that 10%. That's called being generous. And so your first 10% over here is this thing called a tithe, and you give it to me. And God's saying your last 10% is over here, and, and that's called being generous, and it's the gleanings that fall on the ground, and that goes to poor people, and that goes to helping out your fellow man in need, and there's joy that ought to come from that. And so it's funny when I look at Scripture, we're looking at like 20%. We're not looking at 10%. And they're two totally different things. And, and so we get into the, the Bible and we start reading different things. And you know what happens? It wigs us out. Because I'm living at 105% of my income already. So how in the world do I tithe? How in the world do I, do I be generous to my fellow man? Because now it's, I can't see it. I can't see that if I give away that money that somehow enough is going to come in for me to continue to live. And so there's this huge faith dilemma, and I don't want to keep spending that money on God because it's stressful. Okay, I'd rather go spend it on the things I want and, and satisfy urges, and, and, and it's easier, and all these other things. And, and so what happens is this truth gives rise to a new life, and it begins to grow. And what Jesus is saying is this guy... And this gal, the worries of this life, how in the world am I going to make it? And the deceitfulness of wealth, that if I, if I pursue money and I've got this money, that somehow that's going to satisfy me. That's the lie. Because sin lies. I mean, it's that simple. I mean, I, for, when I was a college pastor, all I would tell guys is life is this simple. God makes promises. And he says, do this, obey me, and you will live, okay? In sin, 
makes promises. Do this thing. Get this thing. Have this thing. Break this rule. Um, get this girl. Whatever it is, um, do this, and you're going to have happiness. You're going to have pleasure. And they're set up against each other, and they're both making promises for the same thing, that you're going to have the, the good life, that you're going to be fulfilled and satisfied and happy. And so all of life boils down to trying to figure out which one's telling the truth and which one's telling a lie. Because they're both making promises. And when you act, you're going to act in accordance with one of those two things. And so um, I try and tell them, look, I've been down this road and, and this is one's a liar. Okay, I know firsthand, this one's the one telling the truth. God's telling the truth. But Jesus is saying, um, some people are going to begin to live out this new life and then they're going to run into this dilemma and, and they're going to be kind of stutter stepping and they're going to be really lost and confused and they're going to choose the world. And they're going to choose the deceitfulness of sin. That wealth over here is promising something. And even though it's deceitful and it's lying, they're not going to really realize it. And, and they're going to go that way. The deceitfulness of wealth. And it's going to choke out that new life that's growing out of the, their heart, the core, the ground of who they are. And the last one received the seed, takes in the truth of the kingdom of God that fell on the good soil, and this man hears the word and understands it, and and he realizes that this is God's, and he or she is God's, and everything we have is God's, and that if we just live right and follow God, even though hard times will come, he will fill us with a peace that surpasses understanding, that we will be satisfied even in the midst of trials. As James says, we can even consider our trials pure joy. Because God is there with us. He understands that. He hears it. It takes root and it begins to grow and it produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. It just bellows out of this guy or this gal. And that's what land, that's what the, we and our hearts were made to do. It's got that latent potential to give life and to grow stuff. And the good soil does just that it produces and it grows this stuff and it manifests itself and and I love that picture of understanding it through the lens of soil and so I think there's another passage that um, kind of helps us really get at the whole heart because I think we get the idea of a good foundation a good foundation matters a good heart matters I mean um, good foundation you want to build your house on a good foundation. Uh, good foundation, you're going to pick desirable land over non-desirable land. The movie Far and Away, remember that one with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman? And Tom Cruise is like set in the 1800s, and Tom Cruise is this um, great prize fighter. <laughs> I don't know, but I kind of find that funny. Um, anyways, they uh, they end up in the land rush, and if you remember the movie her parents kind of go out there in the land rush too. And even though they're rich arist uh, aristocrats from Ireland or something like that, and they're going to go in this land rush and try and get some land. And they're going to do this whole uh, living in the West U.S. thing. And, and the dad, who's this real quirky guy, goes out the night before and he finds this land with the, 
the whole stream coming through it, and it's good soil, and it's rich soil. And he's, like, looking over the ridge, and his wife's got the horses. And when everyone else starts running at the beginning of the land rush, he's hollering at his wife to, like, run the horses in circles so they look like they've been running and sweating. And, you know, because he's staking his claim early, and he's cheating because there's good land, there's good foundation, and we understand that. Okay, Roman soldiers, a fun story I've always loved. One of the reasons they were so good was they had sandals that tied all the way up their shins. I mean, they laced all the way up to kind of like their knees. And so when they would go into battle, these Roman soldiers, they would have a foundation that was greater than the people that they were fighting. And so it gave them strength and it gave them ability that other people didn't have footing and stuff like that. So we understand this whole idea, but really taking it down to our hearts, when we're talking about foundation as the core of who we are as personal beings. And so I want to just flip over to Matthew chapter 9 and look at another passage. Actually, you don't even have to flip there. I think I've got it on the screen. But here's one more passage that um, I'd like to look at through this lens of the soils. And Jesus says this to the Pharisees who just keep not understanding why he's doing what he's doing. They can't follow him, and he says this, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. It's just obvious, right? The new cloth shrinks, and, and then it just rips. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So the wine goes in, it ferments, it expands. If it's an old crackly wineskin, it's going to burst. And Jesus is saying, you know what? I came to sow seed of the kingdom, to, to preach truth, to give this message, to, to have people understand. And in that phrase all throughout the New Testament, you know, they have eyes, but they can't see, and they have ears, and they can't hear. And Jesus is just like, you guys are so rigid and inflexible that even though I'm bringing truth, you can't receive it. You can't hear it. It doesn't take root because somehow you've lost the ability to learn or to be humble or to be submissive or to to understand. You're rigid. And so I think the soil thing gives us a perspective on that. There's a way I'd like to illustrate just that passage in New Wineskins. And C.S. Lewis, uh, who I love, in his book, A Grief Observed, he lost his wife. He, He journaled it out. His friends told him, hey, you need to publish the journal. He published it under a pseudonym, N.W. de Klerk. And eventually after he died, they put his name on it. But it's just his journals of his grief. And he says one of the most amazing things in his journal as he's journaling around. uh, He's talking about the pictures of his wife and the snapshot in time. And they're saying, and he realizes, you know, the picture isn't the, the real thing. It's a freeze frame thing in a box and it's not the reality, it's just an image. And he starts meditating on that, and he says, maybe we do that with mental images. Maybe we do that with first impressions. We, we get a picture, and we hang on to that, but the reality changes, and we remain fixed with the picture that's not reality. And he keeps going on, and he says, you know, maybe my neighbor is like that. And so he says this phrase, he says, I want my neighbor, not my idea of my neighbor. Does that make sense? And then he takes that a little further and he says, I want Christ, 
not my idea of Christ. My idea is rigid and it's inflexible and it's, it's less than the sum total or the wholeness of what Jesus is. And he goes, I don't want my idea. I want the reality. I want the real thing in its fullness. And he goes on and says, I want God, not my idea of God. And we reduce things to those pictures, don't we? And when we realize that, when we don't realize that there's, there's room for us to grow and room for us to learn and we hang on to the image, we miss the fullness of God in our lives. So here's how I always have illustrated it. How many of you in this room would say that all the beliefs that you have right now are 100% true? Everything you believe in your head is 100% true. Who would say that? And so Mike Byler didn't raise his hand, so he obviously b- believes that some of his beliefs are false. Right, Mike? Okay, which ones? Most, okay. Well, which belief that you have that you're holding on to is wrong, is false? And it's, it's, a, it's a false question because if you knew which one of your beliefs was wrong, you'd change it, wouldn't you? If you knew which one of your beliefs was insufficient, not all the way up there, it lacked depth or it was wrong or it needed to be modified. If you knew that, would you not change it? And so we admit that we've got all these beliefs in the back of our head that are probably um, less than perfect and we don't know which ones they are. So what posture should we take in life? The posture that comes from realizing that we have a lot to learn and it's this, it's It's open hands, it's humility, and it's teachability. You know what? I can be wrong. I know I've got beliefs that are wrong, and it's funny. It's going to take me by surprise because if I knew they were wrong, I would have already gotten rid of them. So that means I believe that they're all right. So I might might react when something I believe is questioned. I might not like it. It might feel weird. But you know what? I want God, not my idea of God. And so instead of holding everything tight-fisted, I'm just going to put it open and say, God, reveal yourself to me. Continue to teach me. Help me to continue to grow. Um, I want you, not my picture. You know, nobody likes to be put in a box. I like doing personality stuff. And it's funny because most people don't like it because they're like, you're going to put me in a box. So we don't like to be put in a box, but the funny thing is, is we put ourselves in a box by not being teachable, by being inflexible. And I think the idea is we got to remain humble that way. I learned that just recently. So if you were here for the Human Rights Series, I tried to confess something, and that was that I thought I understood the nature of the Christian life, and I believed it, and I thought I had it right, and I thought it was true. And when I began to read about what was going on in this world and that there's things like sex slavery going on in this world, at all times, and I looked at Christianity just being about me and about us, I realized that it was insufficient. And so I developed a new view that Christianity is a call to live out, not a service to take in. Okay, Christianity is a call to live out. It's not a service to take in. And I understand that to a deeper degree than I did before. I had beliefs that were wrong and they've been modified. Um, if you've ever read the Psalms when you were a kid, I, it's funny, uh, junior high kid, high school kids, they read the Psalms, and I think they, uh, at least the way it was when I first started reading them, I was like, what's the big deal? 
I know my grandma had a favorite psalm. Why does everybody have a favorite psalm? What's the big deal? And I kind of put it away, and, and then later on I came back, and I started reading them, and I'd lived more life, and I'd experienced more things. And all of a sudden, the, the richness of that first-person uh, narrative going on in the psalms and the rich symbolic language that hits at the emotions all of a sudden meant something to me. And I realized I'd grown. That, that something had changed. What I couldn't appreciate before, I didn't have an aptitude for, I now could appreciate. And so it's that kind of a thing that we begin to realize, you know what? I want God, not my idea of God. There's things I know that I'll go for the, to the wall for. I know my God, and I know my, my Lord, I know Christ, and I know these things, and I'll go to the wall for those. But within some of those parameters, there are so many things that I can still learn. And so that soil that has potential to give rise to a lot of great things, that soil can't be rocky. At the core of who I am, I have to remain humble. I have to remain teachable. I have to be a new wineskin if I want God to continue to work in my life and to show me truths, because he's not going to show me truths that I can't accept or embrace or, or give life to. He's going to pass me by like he did the Pharisees, and he's going to go find a bunch of fishermen or simple-minded guys, or guys with just big hearts that don't have egos, and he's going to start pouring his truth into those guys and saying, I can work with you guys. You guys have good soil. You have good hearts. Um, so we got to remain humble. Here's what Lewis says about humility. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he'll be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility he will not be thinking about himself at all. I remember my best friend in high school, her dad was really high up in the army. And back at that time, he worked with Colin Powell right after the Gulf War. And he was telling me about Colin Powell back then. He says, when you're talking to the guy, it's like the guy locks into you and just sucks out of you all the knowledge that you have that he can gain. It's teachability. You know, I remember when I was looking at seminaries, I went down to Dallas Seminary, and there's this guy that I stayed with, and he was married with grown kids, like junior high on down. And the guy would wake up every night at 2.30, go over to his computer that was in the closet in the pitch black dark, and he would just journal to God with his eyes closed. And, and he let me read a bunch of it. It's like, mis- you know, typos everywhere. Um, and it's, you know, God, I'm weary. God, I'm tired. God, I need your help. And he would just get out of bed in the middle of the night every night when he was broken when he didn't want to, when he didn't feel emotionally strong, but when he was most teachable and he would just listen to God and he would just journal out his prayers and he was so hungry for God to speak to him. He was so receptive to that. There's amazing things and amazing fruit in his life coming from that. Do we want God or do we want our idea of God? Are we really laboring to not be right all the time or to win to the debates or to 
or to appear a certain way or to have it all figured out? I mean, are we really willing to trade away our pride um, so that maybe God could plant some seeds in us that are going to give a harvest? So um, my challenge to myself, because I don't think it's one of those things where you point a finger at somebody else. My challenge to myself is I just, I want to be that guy that's teachable. Uh, I want to be humble. I want to know things that I wouldn't know if I was rigid. I want to learn things that I wouldn't learn if I was closed off. I want to experience God. I want to know the truth planted in my heart that just grows out, that potential is fulfilled. I want to know those things that wouldn't come if I wasn't receptive soil to the truth and the message of Jesus Christ come down from God. And so I just pray for this church that if nothing else, this church would be a place that just people come in and it's like rich dirt. <laughs> I mean, it's just like that good soil, just manure all over it, you know. I was driving back thinking about soils from California and they got all stinky for about five miles, you know, the, the manure pastures. And this is my closing thought. It says in Hebrews, encourage one another daily lest your heart be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Lest your soil get all dried up and and crusty and unable to grow anything. You don't want that, so you have to be encouraged daily. And so we need each other to spread manure uh, in our lives. And so that was actually the t-shirt idea I had. Spread a little manure um, in someone's life. And so... um, May we be that congregation, may we be that community that really understands how to encourage one another, that we would be teachable, that we would be humble, that we would be real, that we would be authentic, that we would be receptive. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you uh, this morning that we are a part of a community and that there there are signs of life here, that uh, there are signs of health, that there are fun things, there are things we can get excited about, and that's just your goodness poured out on us, and we want to give you thanks for that. And Father, I just pray that it would teach us something and that we would never get satisfied and sit back and become rigid, that we would just somehow be able to remain humble so that you could exalt us, that we wouldn't become proud, that you would need to bring us low and and break us. And so just, ah, Father, do a work in us. You created soil and land in the first place, and so I just pray that in our hearts and in this congregation, you would create rich, deep, fertile soil. Send just truth to us. We pray that in Christ's name.